Daniel, it's always such a pleasure to be able to speak with you. So thank you very much for sharing some time uh, with me today. Uh, just to get started, um, I wonder if we could um, hear a bit about Faith Action. Could you tell us what is the organization and what kind of uh, work does it do? Well, Faith Action is a network of faith-based organizations that really want to serve their local community. So uh, we, were, we came out of an organization called Lifeline. Uh, they still remain our kind of responsible body. Lifeline was set up in East London in 2000. It's 21 next year, so kind of getting ready for big celebrations there. Um, but in the early 2000s, there was a fair amount of opportunity for, for faith-based and community organizations to get funded. Lifeline, I think it got a turnover of over a million pounds within a year. And then there was a lot of churches and, and faith groups generally banging on the door and saying, essentially, how are you taking government money and keeping some kind of moral position? And so we realized that there was um, some need for representation for, for faith groups that were getting involved in the public square. So that's kind of that's how we started. We worked initially with the cabinet office and we had two other national partners we worked with. Uh, and then we moved over to work in the Department of Health, which we stay hopefully remaining now. We're currently in a tendering round with them. Um, and then um, we, uh, so we've been advising Department of Health on connecting with faith groups and, and how faith plays a part in, in um, things like chaplaincy, but also in, in delivery of different services. Most things are health. Education is health in some ways. I mean, if you think we're, we're currently in the, the pandemic at the moment, you realise that kids not going to school is a health issue as much as it is an education so all those kind of things, everything. So that gave us a lot of scope to operate. And then um, we also developed this Creative English program, which is a community-based English program uh, where effectively we have a franchise. So we we train other organisations in an approach to English language teaching, which is really about belonging and connection and community. Mm -hmm. um, and that was funded for a number of years by the communities department. And we're currently working in the communities department on covid response and place of worship so that's a, a quick potted history we also run the appg on faith and society which Dan has been involved with as well mm, well what is an appg ah okay all party parliamentary group mm. effectively it's a club of parliamentarians mostly mps but sometimes mm. peers as well who have a particular area of interest so there is one on beer there is one on cycling there is one on cyprus there is one on all different things. So we we are looking, our point of interest is looking about faith and society. So how faith interfaces with society. So it's not about worship. It's not about um, freedom of religion, although that, of course, comes into some of the stuff. It's, it's, there is an Islamophobia group. There's an anti-Semitism group and that kind of thing. But we're really about faith and its roles um, outside of, I suppose, outside of religious services and serving the community. So... Um, and we find that that's a key role. We've developed a faith covenant, which now 13 local authorities have signed, including Birmingham and Leeds, which is essentially how local authorities could work together with faith groups. So there's about 5 million people in the UK who are covered by a faith covenant, whether they know it or not. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. So interesting. Um, so... Uh, one of the questions that I quite enjoy asking in some form or another, and this is a question um, that's been put forward by, by Emily, is how did you get to where you are now? <laughs> oh, it all went wrong. Um, 
Uh, no, it's it's a it's a good question, Emily, and it's one that I I'm asking myself uh, when I'm doing various podcasts. Um, I I grew up within um, a house of faith itself, um, uh, so within a Christian tradition, uh, and and um, uh, and from a young age, I, I'm the first to go to university in in my in my family so that was a bit of a different thing um and i decided i want to go to university in the sixth form and i decided i wanted to study history and drama and i decided i want to be a history teacher so your whole life aims towards this kind of thing of becoming a history teacher which i was for all of five years um until uh because my church is linked to lifeline projects um, people asked me if I would come for a period of time to help professionalise um, the the education stuff. Um, I thought I would come out for two or three years, and I believe it's been sixteen years 16 since. Years. Right. Um, so yeah, so it kind of was a bit of a, a, a bit of a trek. Um, I, in terms of faith action, how I got there, watching my church getting involved with community projects get involved locally is I suppose what helped and continues to help me reflect on how you can move into serving the community so that's kind of how I got there and my church is very much focused on relationship and community um it's not it's not a kind of one day a week kind of thing it's a Mm. it's a lifestyle thing so that all kind of interchanges with that yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, from from what I know of, of faith action and your work and everything, that the church context is a really really important thing for for everything everything works. And in fact, um, I've got a question uh, from uh, Bodicea, and she asks, "What denomination are you, and what are your beliefs?" So, could you tell us a bit more about that church context? Yeah. Okay. So um, it's funny, Bodicea. I'm I'm looking. I've been looking at what what I label my church as, which is actually probably a term that was more familiar 10 or 20 years ago so we would we came out of what was called the house church movement um the background to that was uh, in the 60s and 70s there was what what has been called in church terms of charismatic renewal that people started to within churches started to re-engage with some of the fundamental um experiences of the new testament uh which talks about the early church and particularly an expectation of a much more um, miraculous existence, I suppose, um, and and all things to do with things of the Holy Spirit and that kind of thing, which I won't take all the time to talk about now. But one of the outworkings of that, if you look in the, in the Bible, in Acts 2, you see there's a particular moment called Pentecost. But after that, there's a couple of things that come about. Um, People start being healed. People do funky things like speaking in tongues and all these different things like. But also you see that there was that people went from house to house and there was meeting together in the temple, like the church of its time. But there's also meeting in the home. So the home and that relationship was really important. In fact, it says that there was no needy amongst them. So there was a sense of sharing and connecting and looking out for each other. It's fascinating, actually, because I was looking at it recently and that was exactly what was said way back in Deuteronomy as a result of the law there was supposed to be no needy amongst the, the children of Israel as well so it's part of that kind of thing so so many people started to look at this from lots of different directions um, people within Anglican churches people within Baptist churches started to look at these kind of things and feel a slight sense of disharmony with what they were in 
and they started to find themselves in small groups in houses so house church and over time those banded together but the relational and the house factor has remained important and i think actually um dan um it's becoming even more important i've been with the project we've been doing i've been talking to a lot of faith leaders and a lot of christian leaders and actually the refinding of community connections again seems to be of utmost importance particularly in this time um, in terms of what my beliefs are I'm a pretty classic uh, christian um so i it's probably would be better to some extent, if you were to tell me what I think about this, what I think about that, essentially, I, you know, I kind of believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that He was divine. I believe that He is the only route uh, to paradise, heaven, salvation, however you want to put it like that. So, and that's probably interesting in the context in which I find myself because classically evangelicals, so I'd say I'm a classic, um, I'm a classic. Um, charismatic evangelical um, have not always worked well within multi-faith settings i would say that's somewhat because in the end there are different parts of christianity and different faiths because there's different beliefs that there is there is a slightly naive concept put forward normally by people not of faith that it's all the same isn't it and you just need to talk it over well it, it's not the same otherwise there wouldn't be nine official faiths and however many unofficial faiths so therefore the belief if the belief's not the same how do you get together well partly i would say it's our action brings us together so i have common common understanding with muslims and Sikhs and buddhists and what have you um and the key factor i would say to my very long answer to both series question is that within christianity i have a duty to the widow and the orphan i believe that's the same with most um, religions the widow in today's society is those without economic independence and the orphan is those without a place of belonging that's quite a broad area that we can agree and work together on we don't always have to agree on the starting point but our end point is mm -hmm. i mean you said you said a few times something about uh, the nine faiths or the nine official faiths who's come up with those and and if you can remember which which ones are those or it's not a quiz but <laughs> yeah, no. No, I can't. I can't remember. I will count them on my fingers as I go. Okay. Um, so I think the nine official faiths, as I call it, Dan, came from the Home Office sometime in the two thousands. Yeah. I believe one of my predecessors at Faith Action said that they are all faiths that have some kind of central book, okay, uh, or scripture, uh, or yeah, holy scripture in that sense. Yeah. If you then start to look at those who are not in that it's because they don't necessarily have some kind of commonality together now saying that someone will argue with me but here we go so we've got uh, we've got abrahamic faith so we've got christianity judaism and islam the dharmic faith of um sikhism hinduism jainism and this is where i'm starting to go astray and then there's baha'is there is zoroastrians and there's buddhists there you go there's a nine there's a nine yeah yeah, so I've actually got a nice little calendar from the Tower Faith Forum that's got more listed on. Hmm. So, um, so I could have cheated and looked up. So, so does it mean that the government only recognizes certain faiths, or can only provide funding to certain faiths, or what does it mean to be on the official list or not be on the official list? 
the easy thing for me is it means those are the ones I've got to make sure I I, right. I connect right. with. With our current project we're doing, we have to hold focus groups for for those nine groups. We actually put some mm-hmm. together. Um, no, I think that um, see, in terms of protected characteristics, it's it's faith and belief. Mm-hmm. So your belief can be a, a, a protected characteristic. Um, as well so i don't think it would necessarily restrict funding um the biggest issue i think in terms of funding and this can this can be as much for a church or a gurdwara as anything is is that is that organization established as a has it got a charity number is it existing in that it's it's actually technical legal stuff even more than belief that seems to be the the key factor there so yeah that makes sense. Uh, I've got a question from from Annie that I'm that I'm keen to ask you, which is, uh, what's the thing that you want to change most? Oh, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's the thing? Me. I'm the thing I want to change most. I think. Um, but I suspect you are asking more in a societal sense. Um, uh, yeah. No. I. 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 I spend more time thinking about how could I have done something better or behave better or that kind of thing. And I think that's always a good starting point. Um, life, life treats you in different ways and it certainly drives in for me, it drives in a sense of humility. In fact, there's a great quote from CS Lewis that um, uh, with, with true humility, you don't need modesty. Um, so, or I might've got it around the wrong way, which means I've not learned it. Well. Um, the thing we'd want to change most from a, from a work perspective, from a faith action perspective, I would say one of the problems about faith being a protected characteristic is that there is therefore the underlying assumption of disadvantage. So, so what does it mean by protected characteristic? Well, let's look at some of the others. Um, ethnicity, race, disability, learning difficulty. All of those things... Uh, whether you agree with it or not, all those things are considered to be disadvantages. Um, and uh, and I think with the whole Black Lives Matter period that we're going on, the organisation, but the kind of the, the protests and stuff, we really have sought to understand the, or growing our understanding about the, the day-to-day disadvantage that people ex- experience. The problem is that when I wake up and look at myself in the mirror, or a sick person wakes up and looks himself in the mirror or whatever. I don't think they look at that face and say, oh, my goodness, today I have to overcome the disadvantages that my faith brings me. So the short answer is the thing I'd most like to change is actually how society, that society doesn't view faith as a disadvantage, but as an asset. That's the, that's the, that's the key thing, because I think that would release a lot more of stuff. Mm-hmm. Faith is not just a bank, not just a bank of volunteers, but there's 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 organizational structural infrastructure that can be used. There is a belief system that means people often are the first in and the last out. You know, it's it's all those kind of things that is an asset. And that's often the thing. So it's quite sometimes it's difficult because I think some people of faith struggle to play the the victim Olympics um, to get attention. They they more uh, like well we'll do this and the other so yeah yeah I mean you, you have a real track record at Faith Action of trying to demonstrate that faith makes a difference in lots of different ways what sort of reports or 
pieces of evidence or something like that have you have you put out there that that showed yeah makes a difference well um i suppose i suppose our our advocacy took a particular turn when we developed a, a paper on um, public health mm-hmm. and social capital in 2014 written by mm-hmm. lucy in fact that's currently going through a review and refresh um and we're working with the guild of health um on that so but we've we've looked at various different areas we've looked at we've we've worked together with the local government association and produced a paper on faith in that sense we've looked at faith related to alcohol faith related to homelessness mm-hmm. faith and actually the APPG will be taking um will be um I was going to say taking evidence though it won't be taking evidence there um uh colleagues from Sheffield University are going to present when we get to present these kind of things on a paper they've developed on faith and slavery or modern slavery mm-hmm. right. and there I believe there's a similar paper on faith and addiction services from uh, Cardiff University as well so so certainly we've been part of doing those things and and and, and students are very welcome to look at our website um, and the resource section to see some of those uh, things we're doing currently I would say my current achievement is maybe a little bit more faithy than usual um, the new the new um, tier restrictions that we have in the UK um, now allow um, for faith places of worship to be open and communal worship to be happening. Now, that's not normally the area we're involved with, but I was quite involved with helping present the science of those, of the, the safe, the safety of those places. Right. But also the case has been made about the really important um, mental health benefits of places of worship. So I would say that's a, that's a hot off the press as of yesterday. Wow. Uh, so I'm kind of pleased with that. So. Uh, that is that's really interesting i mean what uh how do you think you helped win that argument uh was it was it about <laughs> was it about the 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 safety and what particular parts of the safety or, or what, what was it that really clinched it? i think i think there was a couple of things it's interesting one one of the problems in in the uk is is um is we almost we drive government by by sound bites and headlines mm-hmm. and then we say the government should be more nuanced and then when they are more nuanced we attack them for it so the first lockdown was about physical um physical safety the safety from covid of my physical body mm-hmm. the second lockdown has not been the same it's been about also about what is considered essential and what started seeping with essential has been well kids still need to go to school because yes, education is essential, but actually their well-being is essential as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the big debates was, well, hang on, if we're talking about essential, surely places of worship are essential. Certainly, from places of worship, would say that. Um, and I'm, from a Christian perspective, I'm very happy to argue that it's not about a building, but there is some stuff about the infrastructure of faith that enables all the other things I mentioned earlier to happen. So there has been some problem in, in closing those. So. Um, yeah, so that has been quite key to see how those nuances have played out. And essentially what we've done is helped. Um, we've been having, um, at one point we were holding weekly um, uh, focus groups for all those nine faiths um, and producing a weekly report for ministers, which are pretty intense, as well as best practice seminars and, and ad hoc different things that are going on. Sorry. Um, and... Um, the um and what we've managed to do is gather 
evidence, both um, anecdotal and testimonial and those kind of things about the importance that those places of worship, those buildings had. But then actually some of the stats coming out of Public Health England show there's very few cases of outbreaks linked to places of worship that are compliant. Now, if someone's not compliant, it doesn't matter if it's a fish and chip shop or a cathedral or whatever, you can't, yeah, but if people are compliant, um, mm. I, I think the numbers were under 50 people contracting related faith. So, I mean, you could you could probably just get that in a in a fast food chain in one in one area. But um, mm. so. there, there was a much much publicized set of cases that came in South Korea very early on, which might be what what sticks in people's minds a bit. But in the think, UK, yeah, it hasn't I been a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think mass gatherings. I mean, that's part of the problem. And one of the things that we have to walk between is, in some ways, there's, there's a sense of discrimination mm. towards. Faith practices often more common amongst um, vain groups. So larger groups of people gathered together, potentially in less purpose-built settings, uh, in closer proximity for longer periods of time. There's, there's a common factor between faiths on that. And yet, of course, vain groups are those who are more likely to suffer worse outcomes, in, actually in health anyway. I mean, that's that. There is no, there's no controversy about that. The mm. fact that it's also in COVID, uh, and and also because part of the thing is that people are more subjected uh, to roles that are at risk because of healthcare workers, the number of nurses that have died and things like that is yeah. quite, it's quite. Uh, so yeah, so there is a, a couple of factors kicking around there, and it and it is difficult to navigate that because people rightfully think, well, hang on. Let's say that that Catholic or that person from that high church is able to do most of the things they want to do. But within our Gurdwara or within our Pentecostal church, we feel more restricted, proportionally more restricted. And that's that's just a difficult thing uh, to navigate mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. Yeah. Mm, interesting. I've got I've got a bit of a longer question uh, okay. from Alex, which I'm going to read for you. So so listen to this. Okay. Um, with the world becoming somewhat more secular, specifically in the Western world, um, how relevant do you think religious views, especially those written in context specific to their times, like in Romans 13, which is things about being subjected to government and that sort of thing? Um, how how important are religious views um, in making in making decisions in the 21st century political climate? Wow. <laughs> that's a long question i in fact, i've managed to find it i've got it here on my screen as well great, dan so great. i'm going to take it in parts thank you Alex. <laughs> great question cool. well firstly um, i like the first part of your question because i was just going to refute it because uh, the world becoming more secular well actually the world of course is not becoming more secular I, I believe that in the next 10 years there's another billion people or something going to hit the internet and they will be more conservative more religious mm, uh, etc etc however you have gone on to say in the western world uh, which in itself is an interesting use of the terminology as i'm learning on the stuff i'm studying but yes I, in europe and in the states uh, and i suppose we're talking about australia and canada as well um there is certainly a strengthening well firstly there's a myth of secular neutrality as if secular is is neutral but secular is a way of thinking itself and i think that's one of the problems is is where um i don't necessarily want to make sides but for the sake of this let's make sides where where the secular argument has argued against faith 
and that what they have won is that concept that to be without faith or to be secular is actually neutral it's not it's a belief system in itself it's a belief system against something but it is still a belief system so um so therefore that's what makes things somewhat difficult i think to some extent we can't get a level playing field um i don't think you know within the within the within the uk we've got the church of england which is part of the state at times in my past i'd be very much for disestablishment now i'm kind of a little bit more actually i see some values in it. and actually funny enough other faiths are very keen on the church of england as place of the state so already you've got an unequal thing so there's no neutrality and no level playing field made in that sense um how relevant do i think religious views well Thank you for giving the reference to Romans 13. So I'll answer this from a Christian perspective um, there. Uh, and um, I, I would say it is amazing when you look at some of these things, the, the last of which was what, written 2000, or almost 2000 years ago. It is amazing that a text written so long ago in a world without iPhones and what have you, how relevant it still seems how it transcends um, our modern world in lots of ways and how it's valuable and that that kind of thing. Um, within Christianity, there is the benefit of people who are reviewing and seeking to give um, modern language versions of biblical texts to help us see. I, I always like to look back, I do a compare and contrast. And so I think that's helpful. So I think there is a lot... That is to be said. And part of the thing is this. I was trying to explain this to one of my kids recently. Um, and I'm just trying to think what part. Again, I think it's I think it's in Corinthians. Essentially, there is this concept of foolishness. So foolishness within a uh, within a worldly context, a non-religious context, is, is one thing. And if you look at people of religion from a secular or worldly perspective, they look foolish. Why would you give 10% of your money away? Why would you give part of your day away? Why would you have people come into, I mean, part of the thing for me is I think that religion makes is, is effectively family. And the thing about family, there's a bunch of people in it who I love, but I don't necessarily like. And, and love is a choice, not a feeling in that sense. So, so that looks like foolishness. However, from a religious perspective, you start looking um, at some of the things, worldly things, let's say, I, hedonism you know there's a, just kind of just living for yourself you kind of live tonight today for tomorrow we die you know that kind of thing you look at that oh, what a waste and i think part of the thing is having both sides of the argument actually understand that the other one i, I said earlier someone it's like i was speaking to them in french and they were speaking to me in rhythm that it's it's like a different you know there is a language to rhythm and there's a, obviously a language to french but they don't you know and I think that's part of the thing. It, it, they are just so different. So in terms of making decisions in our political climate, that, that's difficult. I mean, Jesus didn't get to vote. A lot of these faith leaders, didn't, didn't. they can't direct us to one party or another in that sense. So I think it's a case of using our head uh, and doing what things we can do and, and yeah, going through accordingly. But that, that's a good question. Um, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you one quick anecdote. Um, which will be the quickest thing I've done so far. Fantastic, yeah, good. <laughs> After the Brexit vote in 2016, I went out for breakfast the next day 
the funny thing is I went and bought the papers at that point as well, thinking it'd be great to have a historical record. But of course, the Brexit vote didn't come through until like four or five in the morning. So all the papers have been printed the night before. So I have historic documents not telling us anything. Anyway, I went out to breakfast with two friends from a part of London called Dagenham. And these guys, if you look at them, you would think they were classic white Dagenham kind of guys. Actually, they're not that, but they look like it. They both voted differently, but for the same reason. So one, they both voted, one voted for Brexit and one against Brexit. So one to leave and one to remain because they felt that the UK should play a larger and important role in international development. They both voted. So, and I think that gives you an interesting thing. So you realize how people of faith can actually vote in opposite directions because their faith motivates them, but it doesn't necessarily give them the same conclusion. 